thanks very much for joining this uh, this webinar. Um, I've been joined with uh, Kylie, Joe, and Dominic. So I'll just introduce each of them in turn. So Kylie, as probably you know, is uh, head of BDO's private client practice in Singapore. And she does great work with many of the families in the region, as well as obviously the Singapore uh, business as well as private client families. Uh, Dominic is head of Henley and Partners uh, Southeast Asia practice and doing great work with them, growing their practice with the, uh, the investment migration services. And then we've got Joe Tang, who's Amico, Amico Global. Joe does great work within Southeast Asia and is also widely known within the Indonesian market in particular, uh, deals with many of the business families there and many, many uh, high value structures, complex structures. So for today, um, we're going to be going through uh, the, the first part of a two part webinar. Uh, this part will deal with uh, primarily the setting up of a that Singapore family office, the tax implications of doing that, uh, as well as the governance implications of two ways in which they can be configured either through uh, shareholding or alternatively uh, holding it through a trust. And the, the issue around the governance is looking at carefully how to deal with the exceptional circumstances surrounding the COVID-19 crisis. We'll then end the, uh, the webinar with a uh, consideration of the Economic Development Board's incentives for um, individuals to come to Singapore, set up their family offices and then get um, some level of status, uh, primarily um, permanent residency. On day two, uh, we'll continue with the tax analysis of the family offices. Uh, we'll look carefully at the ongoing tax implications and as well as the winding up of a family office in, in Singapore. And I think Kylie will also mention either today or tomorrow, some of the structural differentials that can be introduced into a single family office um, for the purposes of um, either having multiple funds or having multiple trusts and what the tax advantages are of those. From, the, uh, from my perspective, we'll then be looking at the succession aspects of a single family office and particularly looking at how individuals who own uh, and manage the family offices, what will happen on their passing if that unfortunate event occurs. And then looking at it from the perspective of if they held the, uh, the shares in the family office personally, or alternatively, if they held it via a trust and if they have claims against the estate. So that's a really a succession aspect. And then we'll, we'll wind it up with a, uh, a broad sort of case study, which will invite Joe to moderate, where all the panel speakers will discuss um, the hypothetical scenario where it pulls together both day one and day two, so that we can um, sort of wrap the whole thing up. The, the idea behind the, um, the, the webinar just in the rounds was to try and encompass all the areas in one go, because we'd seen that in typically single family offices were looked at in isolation. So there was some tax advisory on it and then some, maybe some structuring advice, but there was nothing that really pulled it all together. So the idea was we would try and pull it all together in this webinar and uh, it enabled us all to you know, have, have that advantage. Now, just a couple of things on Zoom. So I um, apologize for any members that had to re-register. So we had a problem with Zoom over the weekend the links went down. I'm hoping that today uh, Zoom uh, is stable and that we're able to get through the entire webinar without any outage. 
if it gets unstable and we end up abandoning, then I think what we might do is either reschedule or just re-record, and then members can then access the recording as, as you wish to, to view it. So I hope that we um, were able to, to get through this without any, any problems with Zoom. But it's a cautionary tale for anyone who's trying to use Zoom for these things. Um, keep checking the links at all times because they, they do unfortunately go down. All right, I think at this stage, um, let me try and uh, introduce uh, across Kylie and see if Kylie can then begin the process of her uh, presentation um, of the, the Singapore, the, the run-in, the tax uh, implications on setting up a uh, Singapore uh, family office. Okay, Kylie, if I can invite you to begin your presentation. Sure. Slide show. Can you see the slides? Yes. Okay, that's good. So good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Kylie and I lead the private client services team in video. So today I'll be sharing with you the basis of family office structures, the basics. Okay. And of course, tomorrow, then I will share more complex structures. So for now, I will just close off my video so that you can concentrate on the presentation. Okay, so this is the part one. And the agenda for today is, first of all, we'll talk about the overview of the family offices. Why do people set up family offices? And what are the objectives? Okay, and of course, we compare the different schemes and structures that's available for us, to us today and of course the ongoing requirements and considerations right so how did all this family office start we all know that family office became a very big thing in the last couple of years in singapore and of course the reason is because of the changing tax and regulatory as well as political environment in the region as well as globally so let's look at what happened and what has been taking place in the last few years and what is the correlation with family office growth in Singapore? So we know that in the 2016 and 2017, we started with all the CRS reporting, okay? And of course, Indonesia also started with the tax amnesty program, right? So what does it mean? It means that tax transparency. So tax authorities all over the world, they now know how much the high net worth individuals have overseas. And of course, knowing how much they have overseas, they will try to tax them. So a lot of the high net worth individuals, they know that it is no longer possible to park assets in offshore companies and claim haven status. Okay, so they began to think, well, the early adopters at least, they began to think, if that's the case and I can't be hiding in the BVI companies and pay no tax, then I might as well find a place to pay some tax or I can just um, come to Singapore whereby I can claim for tax exemption. So that's where the modest growth or the start of the family, single family office in Singapore. And of course, in 2018-2019, Malaysia also had the special voluntary disclosure program. And of course, in the same year, last year, beginning of last year, we had the economic substance requirements in the BI. So what does that mean? Okay, well, I'll, I'll show you, I'll give you an example. I have a Malaysian client, okay, and she took part in the special voluntary disclosure program. And because of that, of course, she was invited by the, 
the tax office in Malaysia to have coffee. And during the coffee session, they asked her, so madam, can you share with me um, what you have overseas, meaning outside of Malaysia? And she told them, well, thinking that, you know, of course, uh, Australia was the early adopter. So she said, well, I have a bank account in Australia and I have about 200,000 in that bank account. So they opened up the file in front of her and they said, uh, I don't think so, it's just that much. We can see that you have 10 million US, okay? And it's housed under a Guernsey Trust, right? And the Guernsey Trust, below the Guernsey Trust, there is this BVI company. So can you please explain where the 10 million came from? And of course she said, um, well, 2 million was my seed money. And because she was a stockbroker, of course, she could justify the fact that she had enough, she has earned enough, regardless of how it went out of Malaysia, but she has earned enough to justify the 2 million US. Okay, and of course the 8 million was what I made from the 2 million, right? So then the tax authorities said, okay, that's fine. Um, that's what you made uh, over the last 20 years. And by the way, the case is still going on. Okay, so can you share with us why you didn't bring the 8 million to tax? And she said, well, because the 8 million was offshore income. Offshore income meaning non-Malaysian sourced income. Why non-Malaysian sourced? Um, because it was in a BVI company, okay, and the bank account was in Singapore. So it's not Malaysian sourced, and therefore I didn't bring it to tax. So then the tax authority said, why would it not be Malaysian sourced if you are sitting in Malaysia and making all the investment decisions in Malaysia? Okay, so effectively how you earn the 8 million was because you were in Malaysia and making all the decisions. And you can't really say it's, it's Singapore sourced because the reality is Singapore did not tax you. And of course, why didn't Singapore tax her? Because it is foreign source for Singapore purposes, but it's Malaysian source for Malaysian purposes. So of course, the tax is still ongoing and uh, they were, of course, wanting to levy the tax as well as the penalties that comes with that. And assuming if the Malaysian tax authorities are very successful, then we are looking at most of the 8 million being wiped out. Okay, so because of that, a lot of the Malaysian clients as well, you know, we always get, you know, a lot of the North Asian clients setting up family offices. But in 2019, especially during the special voluntary disclosure period, we had a lot of Malaysian clients approaching us to set up family offices. So how does family office help them? Well, that's because they are creating the substance in Singapore. Okay, they are demonstrating to the Malaysian tax authorities that my substance, my economic activities, my decision making are all made in Singapore and therefore Singapore should have the right to tax. And of course, she will, the clients will apply for tax incentives to be able to cover that. So effectively, they are still not paying tax out of certain types of income that's covered under the exemption status. And of course, in 2018 and 2019, you know, we had the Philippines tax amnesty as well. It's a big development. And more recently, in the last 
it was in mid-2019 that the Hong Kong instability, and as a result, and because Singapore was the more attractive financial center, of course, we saw a lot of the North Asian clients, including those in China, Hong Kong, as well as Taiwan coming to Singapore to set up family offices. And because of that, you know, a lot of the transparency going on, we also saw the Taiwan as well as the Chinese tax authorities changing their tax laws. In fact, Indonesian tax authorities also tweaked their CFC rules to be able to tax more aggressively what their tax residents have outside of their home country. Okay, so more and more because of that, we see a greater growth. It was a very big growth in the last 12 months, stretching from March 2019 all the way until, more, until recently. Okay, and what happened? What happened in 2020 when we started the year? Okay, we saw the blacklisting of the offshore jurisdictions. I'm sure some of you would know that even Bahamas got blacklisted by France, okay? And French residents deriving income in their Bahamas company would be heavily taxed back home. And of course, Singapore in return, we launched the VCC framework. So a lot of people are talking about the VCC, how we can better use the VCC, etc. So when everything was gearing up to a tremendous growth, Okay, what happened? We have this COVID-19. And because of COVID-19, of course, it's a temporary halt. So what's the future of Singapore? Well, should be good, other than that we are the number one in terms of the COVID-19 cases in Southeast Asia. Okay, other than that, uh, it shouldn't affect our family office growth. Okay, so the outlook for family offices post COVID-19 is that we will continue to see a tremendous growth in Singapore in the family office space. And therefore, today's session is to share with you some of the basics of the family office structures. Some of you may know, some of you may not know, okay? And of course, tomorrow's session, some of the more complex structures and the rationale. So just now we talked about why people set up family offices. Of course, one is for tax efficiency, and that is the more immediate benefit, okay? And some would ask then, what about those Singaporeans? Well, Singaporeans as well. Singaporeans as well, because you are living in Singapore, and obviously your substance is in Singapore, you make all the decisions in Singapore, and you should, if there is any tax exposure, it belongs to Singapore, okay? But clients would say, um, if I put it under my personal name, I should be fine, right? Because if it's under personal name, I never pay tax. Well, to a certain extent, you are correct. Why? Because the IRAs do not scrutinize the mass public like you and I, okay? So for example, if I trade and I make losses, they are not going to keep track of the losses for me as well. And because they know that administratively, it's a lot of cost to them. So it's not efficient and probably they would end up, you know, a lot more people claiming the losses rather than contributing to the tax. So, but it's the same is not true for high net worth individuals because they are 
the, the quantum that they trade as well as the frequency and the level of knowledge that they demonstrate, it sort of leans towards more of a trader as opposed to mass public. So the scrutiny will be on them. And as we speak, of course, a lot of the BVI or Cayman companies, even owned by Singapore tax residents, have been receiving queries from the IRAS saying that, can you please share with me what's your investment pattern, how much you bought it for, why did you sell, under what circumstances, and how did you, did you finance? So did you use leverage or not? So tax efficiency. And of course, another big reason for clients, for high net worth individuals, for setting up family offices in Singapore is for immigration reasons. One is that they want to come to Singapore other than the COVID-19, of course. They want to come to Singapore to have a status, okay, whether it's a tax residency status or otherwise. Maybe they want to attain PR, permanent residency, okay, or they even want to sustain their PR. Some clients, they are under the FIS scheme, okay? And they would have no problems if it's the first renewal, but second renewal is the time that they will find that the EDB will push back, okay? So for sustaining the PR to demonstrate that they have economic contribution to Singapore, or for some people, they may even want to attain citizenship. So for this part, I will let Dominic speak later on on how the GIP program, etc. And of course, last but not the least, for succession planning purposes. Well, this is not the immediate concern and they don't see the immediate benefit, but it does help in terms of setting up a platform for the next generation in terms of their succession planning needs. And of course, if it's housed under a trust, then definitely it, it's more towards a longer term planning. Okay, so very quickly, I'll share with you some of the key features of single family offices in Singapore. Now, the key feature is that single family office means it's owned by a single family unit. And that can be your immediate family or it can be your new, your extended family. Okay, and of course, the ownership structure in this case does not include third parties. And third parties means your friends, your joint investors. That is taken care of by another team, and that's the third party fund, very much like your Blackstone, your VCC, your KKR funds. Okay, so this is just a single family unit, no third party. And of course, the main thing is that the investment and strategic decisions has to be made in Singapore. In terms of licensing, well, it is exempt from licensing in Singapore. And a lot of clients will say, well, if I manage my own assets in Hong Kong, I am exempt from licensing anyway. Well, you are right. In fact, nobody would be subject to licensing if you are managing your own assets. But the difference is that if in Hong Kong you want to apply for tax incentive, then you have to be licensed. Whereas in Singapore, you don't need to be licensed and at the same time you can still enjoy the tax incentives. Okay, in terms of the tax exemption, we have three types. Okay, we have CA, R and X. The more common types would be 13R and 13X and I will share with you why later on I'll compare them. Okay, and of course, the most popular one at this moment would be section 13R. And I will share with you why. 
So what does the exemption provide? Of course, it exempts you from most of the income that you derive from investments. And that would be investments in bankable assets or PE or VC, listed or unlisted securities that's exempt, as long as they are not linked to Singapore real estate or physical precious metals or cryptocurrency, etc. So you can expect that the high net worth individuals bankable portfolio in financial institutions all over the world, it should qualify for exemption, most of it. And in terms of the investment professionals, you can employ family members. And you can employ family members who are just primary school graduates, okay? As long as the person has enough entrepreneurial experience. And that's what we find in most of the founders of family business. They may not have very high education background, but they do have a lot of experience. And when it comes to family members, there is no age limit. So even if you're past your retirement age in Singapore, you can still apply for employment pass. But of course, you can also employ third parties. And when it comes to third party individuals, you have to demonstrate that they are the right ones for your family office, which means they have the right investment experience. Okay. And this is a typical structure of a family office in Singapore, where you have a holding company, very simple, the fund on the left and the family office on the right, which employs. And I will go in more detail later on, okay? Comparison of the different fund incentives. First, you have the CA. Now, Section 13 CA scheme is not the most popular of all. But some people actually go for that. The reason is that they don't have to go to the MAS for approval, okay? So all they need is to get a legal or tax opinion that says they qualify, they meet the conditions at the outset. As long as they have that, they can continue to enjoy. But of course, if one day the law is repealed, where Section 13 CA is no longer there, then of course you can't enjoy the scheme anymore. So more clients would go for Section 13 R and X because it provides the certainty they get a certificate that says the incentive is granted to the life of the fund, the life of the company. Okay? But who would go for Section 13 CA in this case? Well, people who don't want to face the MAS, it could be because they have some sort of adverse records, okay? or maybe because they just find it more convenient or maybe because the fund is not for the longer term. It's probably just for a couple of years or less than 10 years. It depends. Different people have different objectives. Okay. So if you look at the fund, the orange, now this has to be a non-Singapore tax resident company. It cannot be a resident company, cannot be tax resident in Singapore. So for those who are subject to BVI's economic substance rules, etc., this may not be the most ideal for you. Okay, so the most popular of all is the Section 13R. And as you can see, it is very similar to CA, except that the fund has to be a Singapore tax resident company. And it has to be a Singapore incorporated company as well. Well, actually clients don't mind because nowadays with all the economic substance and the blacklisting of offshore jurisdictions, they prefer to set up Singapore companies. 
And the advantage of this fund is that it doesn't have a minimum AUM requirement. And there is also no minimum headcount requirement. Okay, so AUM requirement, however, even if there is no minimum AUM, okay, but practically, if you were to set up a structure and you have very little AUM in that, it also doesn't make economic sense. And sometimes the MAS may ask, so what's the objective of setting up this structure? Okay, so while the law says no minimum, you have to have some level of AUM just to prove the economic, the commercial rationale behind the structure. Now for families who have no AUM issues, but they have a headcount issue because they probably come from a very young family, a very lean family, and they don't have the third party professionals to help them at this moment. So they do have a headcount restriction. So they like the 13R scheme as well because there is no minimum headcount. So it's quite easy for them, quite less, it's less stressful Okay, and it is something that they can start and if in future they want to build into something more grand, they can always do that. And all the schemes, by the way, they offer the same benefits. All right. Okay, so in terms of the 13X scheme, now this is the offshore, this is more flexible, which means you can apply even to multi-layer structures. Okay. You can apply to offshore or onshore structures. There are no restrictions. Okay, the only thing is that you have to have 50 million AUM, right? As well as three headcount. And those three headcount, we are talking about full-time headcount. It's not part-time. So if we have clients who have a professional role elsewhere and they say they want to be one of the IPs, well, they can't be one of those full-time. They can only be the part-time. Okay, so we require three full-time. And also for the two schemes, 13R as well as 13X, the fund, the fund, not the family office, okay, the fund needs to spend 200,000. And where the 200,000 comes from, it comes from paying the family office investment management fees. It comes from paying the banks, the financial institutions, the bank charges, the interest expense, paying the lawyers, the accountants, the tax agents. Okay, so all of that is counted towards the 200,000. And I will show you three simple typical structures. Okay, and tomorrow I will share with you the more complex structures. So today the very simple structure would be number one. It's a triangular or somebody call it the diamond structure. It is a holding company on top with two funds, with one fund and a family office below. So they are brother and sister company. Okay, so they are related company. And under this structure, of course, you don't need a license because you are managing your own assets, you just need a legal opinion. And the good thing with this is that, you know, there is flexibility because you have a holding company on top, you can keep adding different funds later on. Okay. And, but the bad part is that it may be slightly more expensive because of course you have three companies as opposed to two. And the second type of structure is the two-tier structure, what we call two-tier, it's more suitable for 13R structures, okay? So under this, they are parent-subsidiary relationship. It is not a brother-sister relationship, 
Okay, so for this one, the good thing is that it's cheaper. It's cheaper because it's just two companies versus the three. So in terms of ongoing maintenance fees, it's much less, right? Of course, when it comes to putting inside the trust, um, then we have to think about if this is a Singapore company, you know, the fact that we have to have individual directors, sometimes it may not be ideal. And of course, the last type of structure that I'm going to show you today um, doesn't mean that these are the only types. Of course, there are many other types, but these are the more typical. Okay, it covers more or less 80% of the family office structures, most of them should fall under one of the three. So this one is whereby the fund and the family office, they are separate. And it is good in the sense that sometimes clients prefer to keep a bit more independent. So in case they want to put the fund under a trust, and maybe their family office, they want to get it licensed to be able to manage third-party funds. That's also possible. So it's more flexible, except that because there is no corporate relationship between the two, so it's not by shareholding, you just have a natural person on top, then you would have to get the case-by-case -case exemption from the MAS. Again, that shouldn't be a difficult thing to get. It's just more a formality. Okay, so tomorrow I will show you things like, um, what if I have a US beneficiary? What if I am within a listed entity group and I have excess cash flow trapped within the listed entity group? And of course, listed companies, we have third-party investors. So what, of, what sort of structures are good for me? Or what if I, I have multiple family branches but wants to share just one family office? What do I do? Okay, so that will be for tomorrow, part two. And today, the last thing I want to share with you is that, you know, with every structure, you have to think about the ongoing maintenance, okay? It's not like you just set it up, you leave it there. You have to think about your accounting, your, your tax filing, declarations to the MAS, and if you have employees, you would have to think about the employee tax filings as well. Okay, so that we will go into more detail tomorrow. So that's all I have for today. And um, I'll pass it over to Zach. Thanks very much, Nani. Okay, if you can uh, come off your screen share, then I can build my one on. Thanks very much. Okay, so looking at the, um, coming back to the, the governance side of the family office. Now, this is sort of rather depressing area because we've got, obviously, this is a, a topical um, thing to talk about because we've got this COVID-19 crisis going on. And the result of that has been anticipating that families will uh, fall into disagreement um, surrounding their, their family offices, particularly if there are significant and sustained investment losses. So the idea of this, this particular section of the, uh, the webinar was really to run through uh, the different ways in which um, the family offices can come under stress because of this, um, this current crisis and the volatility in the market. So the areas I'll look at are from a, a corporate family office perspective, looking at the shareholder governance. And then I'll look at uh, if you are structuring your family office as a trust, um, what it looks like from the trustee and the protector's 
perspective insofar as their governance exposure is concerned. And then we'll look at the private trust company in the mix. So remember, all of this is looking at it from the perspective of COVID-19 will put these structures under a unique level of stress because of the investment volatility and the potential that this could escalate to family members falling out. And so what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll try and map through the level of liability risk and then more helpfully try and look at how we can uh, adjust or at least begin the process of managing that risk in the midst of all of this, um, this crisis. Um, obviously, this uh, COVID-19 crisis doesn't look as though it's going to um, be going away anytime soon. So the, the sooner families begin the process of addressing their risk of falling out, then the better. So let me start off with the corporate family office. And I'll, I'll do it in diagrammatic style. Um, and, and then we'll narrate each of the, the points separately. So we start off with a, a sort of simple um, sort of structure. I try and bring up. Uh... So we're looking at the holding company and we're looking at the fund manager and the fund company. A simple structure, as Kylie just mentioned, um, some of these structures can obviously uh, be in different variations, but I'll, I'll work on just the, the central theme of having a holding company of this uh, family office group. Then we have the shareholders, and I'll assume that we've got three shareholders, so three family members effectively, who are in charge, or at least are the equity holders of the family office. I've not made a differentiation for simplicity's purposes of the generations involved, but we can well imagine that they may be first, second, and potentially third gen, but more likely it's going to be uh, second gens that are involved with some trail back to the main family. But here we have a shareholder. There's no trust in this scenario. We have two members, let's say these two members, they're involved in the day-to-day -day running of the family office with the, the, the core team. And then we have this member who is effectively outside of the day-to-day -day management of the family office. Now, disagreements can come in many different ways, but I'm gonna concentrate on a scenario where the, the individual who's outside the family office is the person that's going to begin to, to feel uh, some of the stress in the way in which the family office was initially set up. And this will be driven obviously by the investment losses. So obviously as you accumulate investment losses over a sustained period, uh, people become a lot more concerned and, and this can then um, sort of degenerate into some level of disagreement. So we're concentrating on the, uh, the losses uh, or the volatility giving rise to a great deal of anxiety within the family. So how are these shareholders going to cope? And on the advisory side, what are we supposed to be doing with the families that have set up these family offices? And so this is, this is part of, so I'll run through what, what can potentially go wrong with these individuals, and then I'll run through what we can be doing on the advisory side. So from a family office perspective, um, Quasi-partnership is a, a, a rather odd term, but what it is under sort of UK common law, and the same would apply in Singapore, is you have family-owned companies that are rather um, not casually run, but they're, they're on a, a less formalistic style. And the courts have recognized that there can be some level of interplay between shareholders, which is effectively outside of the general remit of a, a, a strict corporate environment. So there's expectations that the family members have with each other, and this can heighten 
the, um, the, the, the way in which the, um, the, the sort of liability risks can arise. So quasi-partnership is a way in which the courts have recognized that fundamentally family-owned companies are different from, let's say, a listed company with disconnected or, or, or arms-length third parties. And I think it's important to realize that because most of the family offices would probably have been set up in a, in a rather casual way with respect to how the shareholders will, uh, will interrelate with each other, because it, after all, it's a family company. Um, some of them obviously may have been very well advised and very corporatized, but in the main, I, I suspect most of the family offices will be uh, effectively quasi-partnerships. So where, where are the areas of dispute? The areas of dispute will likely arise because of lack of information flow. But fundamentally, what will happen is as the system goes under stress, the members that are outside of the system will, be, will, will effectively feel that they're being shut out from the information flow and having any level of oversight. And I think that's the, the key um, sort of genesis of the problem is if there are members that feel that they are not participatory in, in managing this exceptional circumstance, then they'll start to obviously get very nervous or potentially get very nervous about how this is all playing out. The other area is uh, if the family office has not formally responded to the COVID-19 crisis and the investment volatility. So there's been no investment policy response. And what appears to be happening is uh, just a run on from the, um, from the formal policy that was adopted at let's say the inception of the family office. I think that's, a, that's going to be a particular concern is that the members that are in charge of the, uh, the, the family office have not taken the time to actually reformulate a specific response to the crisis. And, and obviously this is going to be a lot of contingencies, but at least turn their mind to it. Obviously the whole issue of administrative uh, policy, what's going to happen with the infrastructure of the family office, uh, its staff and, and premises, et cetera. Um, if the family office is going to need to react to uh, sustained losses, for instance, and look at what is it going to do administratively to cope with this, as many other businesses are having to do at the moment. So salaries and benefits, how is that going to work, particularly salaries to family members? Um, is there, is there a, a sort of case that uh, people should be taking a salary holiday or reduction? Distributions, is it really expected that the family office will make regular distributions in the middle of a crisis? Borrowing, are we going to be leveraging? Staffing, are we going to reduce staffing going forward? Premises, are we going to be moving or at least trying to slim down? And then just looking at general costs. So what you're seeing is, um, this is these are the typical responses that you would expect the business to, to have, but because a family office is family owned, it may well be the case that the members in charge um, don't take the time to actually begin responding in this way. Um, an investment policy response, an administration policy response, and giving a greater level of transparency and oversight to members not involved in the family office. So what's the risks? Um, the litigation risks are fairly normal for a corporate lawyer. Um, these are gonna be all trotting out some really um, quite easy options, so minority shareholder oppression, minority shareholder unfair prejudice, uh, derivative action is really trying to take action on behalf of the company, so the company taking action against its own directors, but at the instigation of the member that's feeling uh, aggrieved, uh, just an equitable winding up of the whole thing, 
breach of fiduciary duty, if there's been misrepresentation by, let's say, the directors and family members that are involved in the family office, there's a menu of options that the disgruntled shareholder can, can explore. And if they, they walk along to a, a decent corporate practice in Singapore, uh, the lawyers there, the litigation lawyers there will, will analyze their case based on some of these heads. But aside from the legal remedies that are available, the fundamental is you're on the way for a family breakdown. So anybody involved in the advisory space with family offices, the, the, the ultimate is to try and avert a family breakdown brought on by the uh, sort of economic circumstances of the family office losing money hand over fist. And I think that's the main thing. So the remedies that are provided under general corporate law, and it doesn't matter whether it's Singapore, Hong Kong, or if you're looking at BVI, et cetera, these corporate remedies are basically replicated across the common law uh, jurisdictions. But the main thing is the family breakdown and, and the, the trying to guard against the family breakdown so it doesn't get to this stage in the first place. So what can we do from the advisory side? What are the steps that we can do? How do we get it so that the family members, regardless of their participation in the business or in the uh, family office, can come to some consensus as to how to manage the situation? And so I, I break this down into areas where do we know where they can uh, encounter disagreement. So we are trying to counter that one for one. So. Obviously, a shareholder agreement, if they haven't already got one, then they ought to look carefully at trying to formalize the relationship. It's not a happy circumstance to be in to do it in the middle of a crisis. But I think it's probably best advised that if they haven't done it, they should look very carefully at coming to some form of contractual agreement going forward. And I'll go through what the, uh, the likely heads could be. If they have a shareholder agreement already, it would probably pay dividends to, to have a look at that and re-review it in light of the exceptional circumstances, because if it's a precedent document, it might not have anticipated things like this, the COVID-19 um, crisis. So here are the key areas that we would, we would look at under the shareholder agreement in, in coping with some of the governance risks that may be encountered. The first thing is enhancing the oversight and accountability. I think you can nip most of these issues in the bud if you enhance the level of transparency across uh, the, the, the family office. So investment and account reports, if these were done, let's say on a yearly basis, now we start to do them on a quarterly basis and have them shared. Real-time data access. Now this one really plays into a particular circumstance that members sh uh, should be aware of, or at least on the advisory side. Uh, we obviously don't know the circumstances of members who are operating these family offices, it could well be the case that the current crisis has pushed them into you know, insolvency or in bankruptcy. We don't know the level at which they may abuse the financial assets in the, uh, in the family office in order to shore up their personal circumstances. So allowing real-time data access to things like the accounts and the investments would at least allow other family members to see that everything is safe and sound and that the member in charge for whatever reason is not effectively um, committing breaches by uh, misallocating assets. And I think this is a very important one. If families ought to consider not obviously being suspicious of each other, but just realize that members can have circumstances occur where they may need to um, do things that were out of character. So real-time data access is something that they should look at just to uh, sort of allay any, any concerns. 
The significant transaction protocols is really agreeing if there are wide swings in terms of the investment policy, uh, ought it to be considered by the group of shareholders first rather than the effective management team. So significant transaction protocols are, are where you set limits, like if we're going to effectively dispose of the one whole tranche of investment, which is worth, let's say, 50 million and then reinvest it into something else, maybe that can trigger a, um, a shareholder uh, decision rather than allow it just at the uh, operating level. So significant transaction protocols are a way of controlling what would otherwise be full discretion at the, uh, the family office level. Joint transaction authority and joint signing authority. These really come back to um, family members being cognizant of the potential risk that they could have a misallocation of assets in this current circumstance because of the circumstances of the members that are in charge. So it's really trying to be a bit more preemptive. Obviously, if the family office is being run wholly by professionals without family involvement, then all of these are a given anyway, because uh, obviously third party risk is, is obviously going to be a concern where um, potentially members are in, you know, in their financial difficulty. Right to appoint a director means that the family members have agreed that they can participate at the uh, family office level if they wish. And I think that's an important one. The likelihood is they won't, um, but at least the option is there if they want to have direct scrutiny of how this is all being managed. So you can see the oversight and accountability is trying to open up um, the, the, the structure a little bit more so that everyone is sure that their interests are being looked after. From an investment governance perspective, here you're really looking at a formal COP19 investment plan and maybe involving third party investment audits. And it's really, is there something on the books where we have deliberately looked at the, the, the impact or the potential impact of the current crisis and looked at the investment profile of the family office and reacted. And I think that this is quite an important one because particularly if you have third parties involved, third party professional advisors, then at least you can say that there is a, you know, exceptional circumstances requires an exceptional response. And we're trying to get best advice on how to cope with this from an investment profile perspective. Uh, distribution retention policy, I think it's probably paying dividends to um, not um, to, to, to have this explicitly said that we will not be making distributions during the crisis. Um, that everything is about holding on and retaining as much cash as possible in the structure. From an administrative governance perspective, really we're looking at um, a formal plan as to how are we going to cope over the next 6, 12 and 18 months um, on a, a bunch of hypotheticals. So we'll look at staffing, we'll look at premises, we'll look at general costs. Now, the issue here is um, to try and see whether or not we can preempt um, the family office getting into a position where um, it's just not realistic to continue with the level of cost that we've been carrying, where the investments are, are tanking and we're effectively using capital to, um, to, to, to fund this. So it's an idea that the family should actually think about this um, and, and go through the formalized scenario plans rather than just leave it to the management team. And the whole idea behind this is to try and preempt any, um, any disagreements. This is a, quite an, a, a tricky one. So a, a formal family employment policy. So obviously family members ought to be on an employment contract or a service agreement. But one aspect that would probably be worthwhile looking at carefully is the no confidence clause. 
And really is this, if you have family members that are involved in, in managing the family uh, sort of investments, you, you probably, it's a difficult conversation, but you have to come to a point where members can agree that there may be a need for um, sort of fresh pair of hands and you know, uh, other individuals to deal with the family office investments and guiding it through. And the, really the issue here is this, it's not so much a reflection on the competency of the family members that are currently involved, what it's really looking at is these are exceptional circumstances and uh, if you don't have a, a level of experience of market volatility like this then it probably might be doing the family member a favor for them to retire and, and be replaced by perhaps a professional that has had more um, experience of this type of volatility but at least the, the family agree a, a mechanism by which the members that are currently involved uh, retire uh, or are removed um, without this, it becomes quite sticky because it will be it will be something that will be potentially dealt with in the live, and, and that's going to be a difficulty. So the no confidence clause is a quite an important one where members can actually stand back and say, "Look, this is too much for me to cope," or other members can say, "Look, we we know you're doing your best, but in 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 all honesty, you're probably beyond your ability to manage in this type of environment uh, going forward." So they ought to have the conversation. Finally is this, the liquidity plan, and really it's looking at um, are we going to continue with this in any shape or form? When do we call it quits? Because if this crisis continues, and particularly the issues with the US continue to get worse and worse, then at some point family members may come to a, a decision that, look, it's just not worth it. Um, why don't we just call it quits? I think they ought to talk about this scenario. What is the protocol around us liquidating and terminating the family office? because the circumstances are wholly different from what we envisaged when we set up the family office. Yeah, they could also look at rearrangements on the share earning, uh, put and call options on the shares to other family members, have a look at the preemption rights on disposal of the shares, tag along and drag along rights, which means broadly it's all of these provisions are talking about if I'm selling the shares or if I'm disposing of shares, who can get first dibs and can I join others on an acquisition or a sale? And really it's talking about exit strategies and the way in which either you exit because you liquidate and get out or alternatively you look at a rearrangement within the family um, going forward. But I think the liquidity side of it should be looked at because some members may feel it's simply not worth the while having the, uh, the assets consolidated and managed in a single family office um, if, the, if the circumstances merit that. So the whole, the whole basis of all of this is to try sort of in summary the whole basis is to stop members getting to a position where they just can't, um, they can't deal with the current situation. They're incredibly worried. And it could, uh, you know, after the event, lead to family disagreement, family breakdown, and ultimately litigation surrounding how the family office is managed um, in retrospect. So in summary, look at the shareholder agreement. If they haven't got a shareholder agreement in place, then they would need to, as part of their response to this crisis, they would need to have a look at whether or not a shareholder agreement is right for them. Um, uh, most often, this is definitely going to be the case because the issues are so myriad in which they can fall out. Oversight and accountability is key. Enhancing that going forward is absolutely key for the family office in exceptional circumstances. Come to a decision about how we deal with the investment profile of the family office going forward, have a formalized plan um, and reaction to it. You'll need to have scenarios, no doubt, on if this, then that, if you know, this 
country goes, you know, sort of another flare up and we, we end up in our main investment base falling apart, what do we do next? But at least address that as a formalized COVID-19 investment plan. And then look at the sustainability of the administration of the family office. Um, so COVID-19 admin plan. Uh, family members, how do they effectively exit from this with, um, without there, there being a big falling out? So what's the triggers for a family member to retire? I think these are important considerations. And then finally, how do we just call it quits? If, if one member um, can't stand to be in the structure anymore, how do we help them to leave? And also like, uh, how do we liquidate the whole thing if we feel that this is just simply not worth it anymore? And for other circumstances, we need this family office to come to an end. These are all critical considerations to try and manage what will be um, as time goes on an area that can give rise to significant air, uh, significant um, risk of uh, family breakdown. So these are the main sort of uh, headings. When I go on to do the, the sort of trust family office, keep these in mind because it's the same thing in the trust scenario. You want to get to a position where there is consensus across the family uh, as to how to manage the situation without getting to a point where people have hard feelings. So that's the key thing. How do we manage this current situation without having hard feelings going forward? This is the current, you know, this is how I would propose the families look at it if they're in a corporate family office. But if they're in a trust family office, then it's slightly different because we have different parties involved. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll recreate the structure, but now you'll see that instead of having a holding company, I have a trust. Uh, many times you'll find that the trust is layered up. So you've got a holding company interposed and then the trust above it. But just for simplicity's sake, I've got the trust holding directly, uh, both the uh, fund company and the fund management company. Within the trust scenario, we have new parties. So there's no longer shareholders. So now we have power holders, which I'll just call protectors, trustees, and then we'll have beneficiaries. And these are the main sort of protagonists in this type of structure. Family members will obviously be involved. Um, this is the, 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 the supposition is that we've got the trust structure, but prominent family members are again in action uh, dealing with the investments on a, uh, on a live basis. Investment losses, as we've already said before. Now, here's the main thing. It's the interrelation between beneficiary, trustee and protector. Um, this is a rather difficult area because it will call up a whole bunch of trust law, which most often uh, when we advise families to set up these offices and set up the trusts, we're really thinking more about the succession plan and more about custodizing the family office for future generations, etc. Uh, ordinarily, we won't be advising them in circumstances like what we've, we're currently confronted with, which is the family office potentially losing cash hand over fist and family members within the beneficiary class becoming more and more agitated that there, is there a correct action being taken. So the trustee, in this case, it's a professional trust company. Um, they'll be very, very anxious about what are their liability risks in allowing the, the losses to mount up and the, uh, the, the practical administration to continue in that way. For the protector, it's all about what am I supposed to be doing in this situation? Where do I start? So it's a difficult area because it's generally not discussed very heavily when we set up these structures. It's very much driven by succession planning and future generation benefit. So let's look at it from the perspective of the trustee first. 
So we're going to map what are the trustees' core obligations and then where, where do the trustees generally end up in a, in a traditional trust. So there's a statutory duty of care and I'm referencing the Singapore Trustee Act. These are all effectively common law defaults. So there is a duty of care, it's reasonable care in so far as the investment of the trust fund is concerned. As with most of these um, statutes, it allows the exclusion of that duty of care um, and no doubt the trust documents uh, will have done that as a matter of course. Uh, trust documents usually carry wide, widely drafted trustee exemption clauses as well, which basically exonerates trustees from liability, save for fraud and uh, a sort of gross negligence. Then we have this uh, Bartlett clause. And I'll talk about this because it comes up with this DBS case that was decided last year by the Final Court of Appeal in Hong Kong. And Bartlett clauses are a traditional method by which trustees seek to limit their liability exposure in structures that involve underlying companies. And, and, and the, the DBS case um, highlighted it for the region, highlighted how Hong Kong would deal with this and gave notice uh, to other common law jurisdictions as to um, how potentially these Bartlett clauses will be viewed. Now, just to explain, this is the, the DBS case. What a Bartlett clause is, is this. It basically says the trustee, in, in just in summary terms, the trustee is not obliged to effectively manage the underlying company's affairs. So it's, it needn't get involved in the management of the underlying company, it needn't supervise the underlying company. And effectively, the trustee can take a standoff view. So the trustee doesn't need to get involved and likewise, then the trustee doesn't have any liability exposure if things go wrong, except for at higher levels where the trustee's on notice of fraud or, uh, or there's been sort of willful default or gross negligence. But at the general level, uh, the trustee can stand back and just watch this unfold, and provided they are not on notice of um, fraudulent behavior, uh, they, they're pretty much exonerated out. And this was what everyone thought the DBS case was, was talking about, and in fact, this is what um, the Hong Kong court decided. However, and this is quite an important consideration. When it comes to the actual judgment in that case, uh, paragraph 73 uh, of that judgment, and I don't, I'm not going to get much in case law in, in this presentation, but what it basically said is this, it didn't decide that where a trustee actually gets involved in the underlying company's affairs, so where it actually begins to supervise the underlying company, it didn't decide whether or not the Bartlett clause, which basically says they don't have to do that, whether or not it's still effective. So most trustees will carry this Bartlett provision where the trustee doesn't have to get involved in a wholly owned subsidiary. But um, insofar as the DBS case is concerned, it didn't decide what would be the case if the trustee said, well, I'm, I know I have Bartlett protection, but I'm still going to get involved in any event. And it wasn't addressed by the Jersey law expert, um, it was unpleaded, and in fact, uh, as a matter of fact, in the case, they found that the trustee hadn't got involved in supervising the underlying company's affairs. So the case is not authority for a trustee that has a Bartlett clause, which is, I don't have to bother with the underlying company, uh, and then I do supervise in any event, I can still rely on the protections. That's not the authority of the DBS case. So. Viewing these Bartlett clauses, we also need to consider this. Bartlett clauses were traditionally inserted into trustees in order that trustees could allow clients to get on with the underlying investments and the underlying activities of the company without 
the trustees being involved. Uh, things like the VISTA legislation in BDI takes that to a statutory level. But the question that we have now for all trustees and for members who are <clears throat> tuning in who are fiduciaries, the real question is this, how will Barclay clauses survive in a modern AML environment? So we've got, so I've got displayed on the screen this uh, FATF guidance that was issued last year. And it's specifically addressing the trust company service provider market. What does it require? So Bartlett clauses says we don't have to care about the underlying company. We shouldn't be involved in monitoring it. Whereas from a TCSP AML requirement, actually they do require from an AML FATF perspective, they do require a, a licensed fiduciary to consider the underlying structure. So the implications are that from an AML perspective, you can't simply have a cutoff where the trustee is wholly unconcerned about the underlying company's activities. In fact, what, what the AML document on the FATF are trying to get to is that you should be monitoring what's going on with the structure. If you start monitoring, do you then start get actual knowledge and involvement? Um, in effect, are you waiving the Bartlett protections because of the AML override that you should be monitoring the structure? So how will the Singapore court manage all of this? Because it hasn't been decided yet in Singapore. Singapore doesn't have to follow Hong Kong. It'll be persuasive because they'll see it as a, as a sister court. But from a, from a Singapore perspective, it, it's from a, let's say from an MAS perspective, if you have no involvement at all with the underlying company um, and you're relying fully on the Bartlett clause, is that going to work from an AML audit perspective? Or if you've already pre, sort of uh, prejudged that and you are involved, you as a fiduciary trustee, you are involved with the underlying company, let's say you're also appointed as a, as a director, then what does that do to the protection that you're gonna to seek to rely on under the Bartlett provisions? And, and this is where I feel that um, the level of supervision and the level of involvement that you have can give rise to a waiver of the, the Bartlett provisions. So in other words, you, you cease to have the level of protection that you would have otherwise thought of having under the, um, the default precedent trust document. So just to, to sort of wind that one up, um, you've got a, a, a situation where you need to look at your trust documents. You need to look at the Bartlett provisions that are contained in them and then think carefully about, well, what is actually happening on the structure? And if it's a family office, are we actually involved? Are we, are we aware of the, the information flow? And are we taking any supervisory roles going forward? Because if you are taking a supervisory role, then I would suggest that the Singapore court would not look favorably on a fiduciary trust company licensed and being paid, taking on a supervisory role then seeking to uh, effectively hide behind the Bartlett protection if things go wrong. So it, it means that you basically get a policy decision. What are we going to do about the Bartlett provision? Should we just effectively waive it or should we sit behind it? And one of the risks that the Singapore court would not be uh, favorable to us. The whole area of exemptions, trustee exemption clauses, and the you know, sort of fiduciary companies seeking to limit their exposure. This is not something that the courts, particularly in the UK, they're not very fond of this. Uh, and there are good commercial reasons why um, fiduciaries do this because of you know, the costs involved, et cetera. But it's a, it's a very difficult area. And it's an area that if you're in a fiduciary scenario, you need to keep this under review, uh, particularly now that we've got active investment losses potentially happening on all of the structures that have uh, effectively bankable assets. So just moving on, if you look at the, from a, this is moving to the protector side now. 
So from a protector's standpoint, this is a bit more difficult because we have to figure out what is the nature of the power of the protector. So does the power have, does the protector have power to direct investments, uh, remove appoint trustees, consent, or just have uh, received notice? It's very important because the nature of the power will give rise to the nature of the obligation. Uh, Singapore, obviously we have the settled directed trust. So if we just look at the direct investments, that's a significant power that the, uh, the protector would have. Now we look at the scope of obligation. Now there's no statutory provisions in Singapore dealing with the scope of obligation of a protector or a settlor who's exercising reserve powers. So then you have to do an analysis of the trust document. Is it a personal power or is it a fiduciary power? And the real issue here is it's something that's particular to an individual or particular to whoever's occupying that office from time to time. That will give rise to looking at each party in turn, settler protected, a settler protector, what would be the level of their obligation? Generally, it's not taken at full fiduciary. It's something along the lines of bona fide or, or a good faith. Beneficiary protectors, again, the scope is quite circumscribed under the case law. Professional protector is probably in scope in the same way as a trustee. The reason why I mentioned protectors is because of this. Generally, trustees have no equivalent Bartlett clause for a protector. So you end up with a protector that has an active duty to watch what's going on with the trust structure, particularly with regards to the investments. Now, this can create some tensions, and I'll go through that next. The tensions really arise between how the protector and the trustee interrelate. Do they cross-supervise each other? Is there a mutual supervision? There's no statutory provisions in Singapore to help on this. Other jurisdictions have done it. The US is particularly extensive on the mutual obligation side, but Singapore has just left it to common law. Scope of trustee supervision will be looking at what is the protector supposed to be doing. So if the protector's uh, got powers to uh, sort of direct investments, et cetera, then should the trustee be seeking to uh, cajole the protector to exercise that or seek court directions that the protector is potentially breaching their obligations? It's, it's all down to what the trust document says and how the protector is actually reacting to the COVID-19 crisis and the investment losses. From the protector's standpoint, should they be supervising the trustees? What if the trustee has a Bartlett provision? So what, what is the protector supposed to do? Seek to frustrate the Bartlett provision if they can by directing that they, they simplify the structure get court directors to, to get the trustee to waive the Bartlett provision so they take action or just do nothing. These are some of the big difficult issues that we're going to encounter trying to risk manage from a fiduciary perspective is how are the protectors and trustees to interrelate going forward? And that comes down obviously to how are they going to react to these um, exceptional circumstances? So what are we trying to aim at here? So what, what's the end result? From a trustee, from a professional trustee's perspective, what's your game plan in all of this? So you have to make a decision. If you have the protection of Bartlett, do you waive it? Or do you risk assess that potentially this is going to go badly? Um, the idea is, I think, that you should be engaging with the protector and beneficiaries, that you're, you should be seeking the, to, to limit the, the, the damage that could occur if you sought to hide behind the Bartlett provision and not be actively involved in the management of the structure. That would be the best approach as you try and make it a, uh, a sort of unified approach where you try and get parties to come together. The key things come up again, family office oversight will need to be looked at, 
COVID-19 investment plan, administration plan, beneficiary employment policy, distribution plan going forward. These are all issues that have to be dealt with. So it comes back to what do we do? Do we get involved in the underlying company or not? Um, or do we hide behind the Bartlett provision and then not get the exposure potentially and take our, our chances with members becoming frustrated? These are big decisions. Every case is going to be different, unfortunately, and the trust documents themselves are going to be quite different as well. So it's, it's a tricky one because it does mean Hi everyone. I think um, I think Zach has uh, has some technical difficulties. Can everyone still hear and see me? Maybe just one or two can let me know in the chat. Okay. Um, so I think while we, in the interest of time, uh, I'm conscious that we're running over a bit. I thought <clears throat> I would start with my section now as well while we wait for Zach to get back on. Um, so I will just share my presentation. Right, so my, my section is really now to focus on um, the investment migration. So according to the agenda, I, I, I thought what I'd do is just mix it up a bit and start with um, a, a quick overview of what of, of investment migration, a quick comment in terms of what we see happening due to the COVID situation. Um, and, then, and then obviously focus on the topic of ha at, at hand, which is how to use the Singapore single family office um, as a fast track to to obtaining Singapore permanent residence. So so let's see let's see how we go with that. So just quickly, investment migration, of course, is is a is an area of immigration which is very much focused on financially independent individuals. Um, these are high net worth, ultra high net worth individuals that are looking to either obtain citizenship by investment or, or residence by investment. Um, you know, there, there's a couple of countries around the world, now probably 11 or 12, that offer citizenship by investment programs, um, whereby you can invest into that country and actually obtain citizenship without having to physically move there, um, without language tests, as long as you have the financial capacity and can um, pass the necessary due diligence and personal background checks, um, then that's possible. And then, of course, residents. Similarly, um, I think globally there's there's over a hundred countries that have some form of legislation in place that allows um, residence or citizenship by investment. But in in reality, there's probably only about 30 countries that have actively, um, you know, successful programs that are available. If we look at global movements of high net worth individuals around the world, um, you know, the, the tried and tested destinations such as Canada and the US and Australia, um, they've always been a very, a very sort of focal point for high net worth individuals. Um, and if we look at the top reasons for these individuals leaving um, potentially their country of, of, of origination and moving to another destination, uh, as you can see in the, in the bottom left there, this is very much where Singapore also comes to the fore um, on these factors. So, you know, world-class educational uh, education, very secure and safe, um, top-class healthcare, great climate, and of course, cleanliness. So those are typically the, the key drivers for, for high net worth individuals to physically move. Uh, and then just a quick comment, um, Dr. Parakana, some of you may know him, the founder and managing partner of FutureMap. So what we see, particularly from our, our sort of ultra high net worth clients now that are, are really focused on even more than before, you know, having that plan B in place. Of course, um, you know, healthcare 
um, access to, to world-class healthcare is now becoming a very, very much at the forefront of people's minds. So if you are a very wealthy uh, individual and your family is still based in one of the emerging markets, um, of course, now is the time where if you had either citizenship or permanent residence of another country, whether it's Australia or Singapore, um, you, you would still be able to access those markets um, and, and, of course, obtain healthcare. And the other side of it is, is being, you know, access to remote islands, which often have these, these investment migration programs, um, is obviously also very interesting in times when uh, being isolated or, uh, or perhaps insulated is, is, is key. So this slide here really shows us the, the map of, of the leading residence and citizenship by investment programs around the world. Um, I think a lot of you will be familiar with the US and the EB5. Canada for a very long time had, had the most successful um, uh, residence by investment at a federal level uh, for quite some time. But I suppose the good news for, for our clients is that more and more of these countries are coming online. They're realizing the value of, of sort of having the sovereign equity um, and, 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 you know, structuring these programs, which of course we help them with in order to bring much needed foreign direct investment. And, and we already see as countries are, are rolling out a lot of um, support schemes and, and, and uh, uh, financial support for business and that because of the current uh, pandemic situation, um, you know, new innovative sources of foreign direct investment will become even, even more interesting. So that's just quickly on the, on the investment migration side. Um, and now we'll focus on, on Singapore in particular and, and what is um, known as the, as the Global Investor Program. So, um, as recently as 1 March, there were some key updates that um, the Singapore Economic Development Board uh, released in terms of the GIP. Some of the more interesting um, additions or, or amendments was in, in the option A, um, where you can invest the two and a half million Singapore dollars into a new business entity or expanding an existing entity. Um, the, the original uh, minimum revenue requirement for for a successful entrepreneur's business was 50 million. So that's now been increased to 200 million. And this is all in, in Singapore dollars. Um, so that was one of the changes. And then they also introduced two new uh, archetypes that are now able to, to qualify for of either option A, B or C. And that is targeted at new generation business owners, as well as founders of fast growing companies. So those are some of the key changes. Um, as you can see, there's now clearly three options available for, for um, successful investors and entrepreneurs to come to Singapore and to, di and, and to directly obtain permanent residence. Um, we won't look at option A and B today. That's potentially for a separate session. Of course, today we're focusing on option C, which is the requirement to invest two and a half million Sing into a new or existing Singapore-based single-family office. That single family office then has to have assets under management of at least 200 million Singh. And one of the, one of the other um, key changes or, or, or things that were highlighted with the new changes as of the 1st of March is that offshore assets can qualify as part of that AUM requirement now as long as 50 million um, of that is transferred and held in Singapore. Uh, the qualifying criteria, uh, as I said, for established business owners, the first column, that, that's, um, that's always been there. The key difference was uh, in, in, in the B requirement there where the, the, the turnover requirement for 
the main applicant's business needs to be at least 200 million, so that's gone up from 50 million. Um, if it's a private company, then the applicant should be owning 30% of that of that business. And if it's public, naturally they should they should be one of the larger shareholders. Um, the next gen business owners, uh, as you can see there, again 30% shareholding um, with annual turnover uh, up to 500 million. And then the other new category highlighted where the changes are. Um, would be the founders of fast growing companies that that's also available and finally the last column the family office principles um, There you would need at least five years of entrepreneurial or management experience um, And and the other key the other key change that came in was previously for family offices the main applicant would have had to have a personal or direct net worth of 400 million sing that has been taken away and the requirement now is that they have investable assets of at least 200 million sing. Um, investable assets that excludes real estate, um, which is important, but uh, of course includes most of your sort of financial assets with bank deposits, um, premiums on life insurance policies and, and so forth. If we look at the process, so the whole process of the GIP, this is, this is taking aside the actual family office setup and, and, and MAS discussions in that um, which, which my other colleagues on the panel would be taking care of. Um, the, the process usually takes about nine to 12 months. There, there's an initial submission um, of the application forms to EDB. Um, there's an interview that's involved. And after that, um, the ICA, the, the Singapore Immigrations and Checkpoints Authority would issue this approval in principle status. That is then valid for six months and the applicant then must make the 2.5 million Singapore dollars within those six months, um, at which point uh, EDB would verify the documents that the investments have been made, and then finally the ICA will issue a final approval uh, letter. The applicant and any family members included in the application would then have 12 months to formalize their permanent resident status in Singapore. Um, maybe, maybe an area just to clarify on again, so that the timing I've mentioned. Um, in, in Singapore, the, your permanent residence card or your permanent residence status is actually permanent. So what, what people are renewing um, uh, periodically, either three to five years, is actually the re-entry permit. So um, as going through the single family office setup, your, your re-entry permit would initially be issued for five years. Um, and that's effectively what allows you to come and go and, and, and leave and, and, and return to Singapore. Um, and that's what you would renew after the five-year status. The next slide I'll come to, we'll look at what, what the requirements are to renew that re-entry permit. Um, eligibility I touched on, so that family member can of course include their spouse, um, as well as un <clears throat> unmarried, unmarried children below the age of 21. Um, any, any parents or, or married children uh, or unmarried children above the age of 21 of the main applicant would have to look towards the, the other options that are available for residents in Singapore, including um, which, would, which is typically used by clients as a long-term visit pass. And then also just a, a word of um, worth noting is that uh, there will be national service requirements um, that is mandatory for any male children who obtain PR by virtue of being included in a GIP application, and even male dependents um, whose spouse is the main applicant, there are certain circumstances where they would be um, liable to serve national service as well. 
in terms of the renewal of these reentry permits, so this again is, is all under um, option C, the single family office setup. So as you can see, there's two options, either it's a five-year renewal or a three-year renewal. Um, under both, you, you would have to obviously fulfill the investment conditions. So the, the 2.5 million invested in the single family office, um, 200 million AUM of, of which at least 50 is, is in Singapore. The family office then itself must also employ at least 10 employees. Um, and this is, this is at, at the end of your five year period when you're looking to renew. So you would also submit a business plan that, that's outlying all of this. Um, so by the end of five years, when it comes to renewal, you, the family office has to have at least 10 employees. Uh, at least five of those need to be Singapore citizens and three need to be professionals. So the three professionals in the family office, these have to be non-family members and they need to hold an advisory role or board appointment, um, whether it's in, in, on the investment, legal or, or tax side. Um, for the five-year renewal, obviously you've got point one and point two and it's an and. So here, to get the five years renewal, you or the dependents included in that application must have actually resided in Singapore for more than half the time. The key difference, as you can see, between getting a five or a three year renewal is, is under the three year renewal, you can either meet the, the business milestones with the, the employees and the business expenditure, or um, the main applicant or the dependents would have to have spent half the time in Singapore. Um, and then just very briefly, a, a quick uh, quick example of, of, of this was a, a client that we previously had. Um, as you can see, we, we call what we do residence and citizenship planning because there can often be multiple um, steps in that process. So this was an American citizen um, who, who effectively his, his, his goal was to be based in Singapore because of all the factors for him and his family, as I highlighted earlier. So he first became, he, he did the citizenship by investment in St. Kitts and Nevis. That took us about six months. Um, he then actually renounced his US citizenship. Um, and with that, he then came to Singapore under the GIP. He didn't use a family office. He, he went under option A, where he invested the two and a half million into, into a business here in Singapore. And after two years of being a permanent resident, he was then uh, invited for Singapore citizenship, at which point we, of course, then renounced the St. Kitts and Nevis citizenship, and he took up Singaporean uh, Singapore passport. So that was just a, an example of one of the journeys. Of course, there's, there's multiple um, variations of this that we've done over the years. That's it, uh, Zach, are you back? Yeah, I'm back. All right. Very good, very good. Thanks, Tom. Um, I think what I'll do is I'll screen share on mine and just finish up where I, where I eventually got to. So let me just bring this up. I'll just, I'll, I'll wrap up effectively with the PTC family office. And here it's the same structure, except we have a PTC trustee involved. Um, and here there's no protector usually. So it's beneficiaries and a, a private trust company involved with um, obvious uh, sort of investment losses. The issue here is how the family will be coping with a private trust company rather than a, a full-fledged fiduciary uh, licensed trust company. And how will the directors of the private trust company figure into any liability risks? So from the PTC itself, it's fairly straightforward. The same old story of statutory obligations, probably excluded, exempted, and obviously probably a Barclay clause included. 
But the real issue with a private trust company is the fact that it's a shell company in many cases. And so it's effectively judgment proof. So regardless of what the family are able to do as far as bringing action against the trustee for not effectively supervising the underlying investments, uh, the PTC probably couldn't pay out on the judgment in any of those. And this has been a recurring theme with the use of private trust companies. So then the question is, well, can the family sue the director of the, of the uh, private trust company to effectively bring um, some sort of redress to mismanagement of the financial assets? Is there a director's liability? Uh, Gregson is a good case because it's, a, it's one that decided that there's no what's called dogleg claim permitted with respect to directors of a private trust company. So the director is not liable. Now, the problem that we have is that if you have a sort of impecunious trustee and you've got no liability risk on a director, then you can have a rather standoffish type structure being administered. So in this case, what are the litigation risks? Well, the straight one, the obvious one is the family will just move to remove the trustee uh, under a sort of court application. Um, that's a sort of disaster, particularly if the PTC has been, in, been structured in such a way that you have multi-generational governance. So the governance structure itself will collapse as a result of the PTC being removed and replaced by a new trustee. There may well have been misrepresentation on the fiduciary's part to uh, induce the structure in the first place, and there may be some avenue for liability risk there. Uh, maybe some brand implications for the large trust companies that um, sort of convinced clients to enter into this structure and then found that it, uh, it's not robust enough to cope with uh, some of these exceptional circumstances. And then, of course, you could end up with a family breakdown. That's the, the main thing that we're trying to avoid in all of this. So the same thing comes up again. What can the trustee do? Well, they can waive any Bartlett provisions uh, that, are, that are there. They can engage with their beneficiaries and then start to begin the process of bringing some level of oversight to the family office. Uh, same thing again, COVID-19 investment plan, administrative plan, and then beneficiary employment policy leading to distribution plan as to whether or not we keep the whole structure going at all going forward. So it's the same issues across both private trust company and professional trust company. The only issue we have with private trust company is there's a higher risk um, that they could be mismanaged because the liability exposure is quite low. Um, the trust company itself is not going to have um, any, any liability exposure in terms of its um, uh, substance. And likewise, the directors involved can, can, can it'd be very difficult to find a, uh, a court, particularly in Singapore, that will find a director directly liable to beneficiaries. So it can be, it has a risk of mismanagement and it has a risk of uh, flaring up. But all of this can be managed quite easily if there's engagement on how to manage this process going forward. From the, um, from the private trust company's perspective. So that was the, the last bits that I wanted to, to say on that and really just talk about, sorry, talk about tomorrow and um, what we'll be doing uh, with, the, with the talks um, going forward. So really looking at the, uh, tomorrow we'll be just discussing obviously the succession aspects of the, uh, the family office and particularly how different laws will interplay with if a member were to pass away and looking at the risks of a Singapore uh, family office being structured through a Singapore trust as to whether or not there's a likelihood of an attack by a forced heir or under a matrimonial property regime to um, attack the assets held in trust and what's the likelihood of that occurring uh, going forward. And of course, Kylie will take up the conversation and the, uh, the narrative on looking at the ongoing tax exposure and obligations for the family office, and also looking carefully at 
if we transition from a uh, corporate-based family office to a trust-based family office, what are the tax implications for that in Singapore uh, going forward? And then we'll end on the case study, which hopefully brings all of this together with both Dominic's input, Joe will be um, obviously moderating it, and then looking at some of the interplay with succession and governance in a live scenario that we've, we've put together.